0: This podcast is brought to you by Lannan Foundation and is available at podcast.lannan.org.
1: Thank you.
2: I am very happy to be introducing to you Viet Thanh Yuen. In the past year, he burst onto the literary scene as a novelist historian, scholar, and short story writer. You might call him poet, too, as the language and rhythm of each sentence and line carry you into beauty and truth. The sympathizer gives us story so that we see life and war from the points of view of many conflicting characters. We sympathize with all of them, So find ourselves switching sides in civil wars and questioning who is enemy and who is friend. Who am I? In Nothing Ever Dies, Viet writes nonfiction as skillfully as he does fiction. This book is an important work of philosophy and history. We lost a war And make memories that we won. We're fighting the forever war. Viet offers us the hope that just memory and an ethics of memory can possibly bring reconciliation and peace. Walking around Santa Fe, I see many MIA flags. It's true, nothing ever dies. I am gratified and honored that Viet quotes from my work. He says that I capture the ethical challenge for writers who speak about terrible events. He praises my story, the brother in Vietnam, for showing that when a soldier squeezes the trigger, the entire nation is behind him all working in conjunction with mind, memory, imagination, and fantasy. What he says about my work are challenges, standards, ideals that he sets for himself, and he reaches them to capture the ethical challenge for writers who speak about terrible events. I do feel inspired and uplifted that Viet's young generation is carrying on the work for peace and justice after me. Nothing Ever Dies was published barely a year after The Sympathizer, but it was 14 years in the writing. We are reading, reaping the harvest of 14 years of dedicated, devoted labor, research, and deep thought. The Refugees has come out precisely at the right time. Just the title, boldly on the book jacket, serves as a protest sign. Our country has yet another chance to save the lives of refugees. And once again, we deny them haven. All my life, my family has feared deportation because we were illegal immigrants and descendants of illegal immigrants. I did not think to name them not immigrants, but refugees. In The Refugees, the book... That gives each refugee a face and a story. The work of literature is to to create compassion in the reader. With books such as The Refugees, we may have a chance to make compassionate immigration laws. Ladies and gentlemen, I give you the important American and global writer Viet Thanh Nguyen.
1: Good evening Santa Fe. It's really wonderful to be here. Uh-huh. First things first, though. (laughs) I can't help it. I'm Asian. I want to thank the, uh, the Lannan Foundation for having me out here, but not just me, but for the entire series that they have put on uh, of writers, uh, many of whom are writers that I admire, writers who carry out this work of, of deeply committed ethical principles in terms of approaching uh, questions of difference, um, relationships, American identity, global identity. And certainly uh, Maxine Hong Kingston, is one of those writers. Um, she was my teacher at UC Berkeley, as a matter of fact. So it's really yeah. uh, it's really an incredible moment to be back here with her. And I have to tell you that um, when I was a student at Berkeley and I heard that Maxine Kingston was teaching a class in creative nonfiction for undergraduates, I thought, I have to apply for this. And so I did. I I had an essay. Um, I think it was an essay on growing up Asian in America. Uh, It was a very angry essay. And I turned it in, and lo and behold, I got into the class. This is Berkeley. You have to fight to get a seat. Uh, And this was only 14 seats in the class. So this was also an important accomplishment, but I think I was 19 years old. And when you're 19 years old, your view of the world is different. I think When you're a little bit older So I didn't think of it As an incredible accomplishment I thought Okay That's nice uh, So I, I went to I went to her class 14 students In the, uh, a very nice Wood paneled room A library And I And I would sit About Three or four feet From Maxine And every single day I would fall asleep <laughs> I like telling that story Uh Because especially in a place like this, it's a great story to lead off with because it sets the bar really, really low, all right? All I have to do is stay awake for the next 40 minutes. I want to start off with a couple of paragraphs from Nothing Ever Dies, the beginning, because it will tell you a little bit about me and about the work that I do. I was born in Vietnam, but made in America. I count myself among those Vietnamese dismayed by America's deeds, but tempted to believe in its words. I also count myself among those Americans who often do not know what to make of Vietnam and want to know what to make of it. Americans, as well as many people the world over, tend to mistake Vietnam with the war named in its honor, or dishonor, as the case may be. This confusion has no doubt led to some of my own uncertainty about what it means to be a man with two countries, as well as the inheritor, of two revolutions. Today, the Vietnamese and American revolutions manufacture memories only to absolve the hardening of their arteries. For those of us who consider ourselves to be inheritors of one or both of these revolutions or who have been influenced by them in some way, we have to know how we make memories and how we forget them so that we can beat their hearts back to life. That is the project, or at least the hope, of this book. It's also been the project or the hope of the sympathizer and the refugees as well. And I think there really is hope, even as I'm bringing up this history of revolutions that have failed to live up to their ideals. I think there is hope, because these revolutions have left traces in our memory of what they aspire to be, what they can be, and a record of the struggles that people and generations before us have undergone to make those revolutions happen. And it's important to have that sense of history and that sense of time and that sense of previous struggle, especially in an era like this, I think, when so many people uh, of a certain uh, inclination are shocked, are taken aback, that their country has turned in a certain direction that they didn't think was possible. But if you have a sense of history, then you know it's very, very possible that even though we're, li- we're living uh, in discouraging times, for some of us, for people like me, These are not new times. If we have a sense of American history, we know we've been here before. And in fact, times before have been worse. And unlike previous generations, we have a history and a memory of the political struggles, the efforts towards progressivism and inclusion that have been bequeathed to us and that we can continue. And when I think of a long struggle, instead of getting discouraged, I actually get hopeful. Right? Because I think that whatever happens in the next two months, <laughs> four years, eight years, God knows, it's only a very narrow window of time. Right. And that, as terrible as things are, as terrible as, as things may be today, even if we have a new election and a new president, that's not going to make everything okay. The struggle will continue. And the struggle has gone on for thousands of years before us. And so, in Nothing Ever Dies, I talk a lot about cosmopolitanism, about this idea that thousands of years ago, when we thought of our community, we thought of the tribe and the village. And anybody outside of that, we were going to kill them. That was the natural world. Now we think of the nation as our natural world. And anybody outside of the nation, we're going to kill them. Or at least not let them in. (laughs) But, if we look back... Into the past, and we see how our horizon of the near and the dear has expanded to include more of the far and the feared than there is hope. There's hope that we at least have a vision that our horizons can extend to the world and beyond. That's what I hang on to. The passage that I read to you was also about duality, the sense of being both Vietnamese and American. And when I was uh, growing up as a refugee in San Jose, in California I felt that duality every day because when I was home in a Vietnamese household I felt like an American spying on my parents <laughs> the strange customs the strange things they did you know Maxine in 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 The Woman Warrior talks about how her mom would like chop up skunks and raccoons and bring them home to eat right well my parents never did that but you know, boiled liver and boiled stomach And boiled tongue every single night for dinner That was pretty weird I just wanted a hamburger you know? Then I would go outside into the world of hamburgers And I would feel like I was a Vietnamese Spying on Americans So I lived that sense of duality every day of my life And so it wasn't much of a stretch To take that sense of duality That sense of feeling like I was a spy No matter where I was And harnessing it with the story of a real spy and exaggerating it tremendously to get to the plot of the sympathizer, which is not in any way an autobiographical novel. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not a spy. I'm not a traitor. Not really a liar most of the time. Possibly an alcoholic, but n- n- not definitively. Not a womanizer, not a killer, right? But it was fun to imagine all those things, and it was fun to take the emotional core of who I was, that sense of duality, that sense of being a spy, and expanding it into the plot of a spy novel and a thriller. So for those of you who don't know, The Sympathizer is a novel about a communist spy in the South Vietnamese army, and in April 1975, as Saigon is about to fall or be liberated, depending on your point of view, his task is to flee with the remnants of that army to the United States and spy on their efforts to take their country back, which really did happen. So he gets to the United States, and he is a refugee, and he ends up in a refugee camp in San Diego or outside of San Diego. And this is going to be the first passage that I read to you, set in that refugee camp, since, as Maxine said, uh, so much of my work is concerned with refugees, a, present, a problem that was there in 1975 for me very personally, still with us today. Uh, so it's set in this refugee camp, and he's writing a letter to his uh, aunt in France describing what life in a refugee camp is like. If allowed to stay together, I told my aunt, we could have incorporated ourselves into a respectably-sized, self-sufficient colony, a pimple, on the buttocks of the American body politic. (laughs) Sufficiently collective to elect our own representative to the Congress and have a voice in our America, a little Saigon as delightful, delirious, and dysfunctional as the original, which was exactly why we were not allowed to stay together, but were instead dispersed by bureaucratic fiat, Wherever we found ourselves, we found each other. We did our best to conjure up the culinary staples of our culture. But since we were dependent on Chinese markets, our food had an unacceptably Chinese tinge. Another blow in the gauntlet of our humiliation that left us with a sweet and sour taste of unreliable memories. (laughs) Just correct enough to evoke the past, just wrong enough. To remind us that the past was forever gone, missing, along with the proper variety, subtlety, and complexity of our universal solvent, fish sauce. <laughs> oh, fish sauce, how we missed it, how nothing tasted right without it. This pungent, liquid condiment of the darkest sepia hue was much denigrated by foreigners for its supposedly Horrendous reek, (coughs) lending new meaning to the phrase, there's something fishy around here. (laughs) For we were the fishy ones. We used fish sauce the way Transylvanian villagers wore cloves of garlic to ward off vampires. In our case, to establish a perimeter with those Westerners who could never understand that what was truly fishy was the nauseating stench of cheese. What was fermented fish compared to curdled milk? (laughs) But, out of deference to our hosts, we kept our feelings to ourselves, sitting close to one another on prickly sofas and scratchy carpets, our knees touching under crowded kitchen tables, chewing on dried squid in the cud of remembrance until our jaws ached, trading stories heard second and third hand about our scattered countrymen. This was the way, we learned of the clan turned into slave labor by a farmer in Modesto, and the naive girl who flew to Spokane to marry her GI sweetheart and was sold to a brothel, and the widower with nine children who went out into a Minnesotan winter and lay down in the snow on his back with mouth open until he was buried and frozen, and the regretful refugees on Guam who petitioned to go back to Vietnam, never to be heard from again. And the spoiled girl seduced by heroine who disappeared into the Baltimore streets. And the devout Buddhist who spanked his young son and was arrested for child abuse in Houston. And the husband who slapped his wife and was jailed for domestic violence in Raleigh. And the men who had escaped but left wives behind in the chaos. And the women who had escaped but left husbands behind. And the children who had escaped without parents and grandparents. And the families. Missing one, two, three, or more children. Sifting through the dirt, we pan for gold. The story of the baby orphan adopted by a Kansas billionaire. Or the mechanic who bought a lottery ticket in Arlington and became a multi-millionaire. Or the girl elected president of her high school class in Baton Rouge. Or the boy accepted by Harvard from Fond du Lac. The soil of Camp Pendleton still in the tracks of his sneakers. Or the movie star you love so much, dear aunt, who circled the world from airport to airport, no country letting her in after the fall of Saigon, none of her American movie star friends returning her desperate phone calls until, with her last dime, she snagged Tippy Hedren, who flew her to Hollywood. So it was that we soaked ourselves in sadness and we rinsed ourselves with hope. And for all that we believed, almost every rumor we heard, almost all of us refused to believe that our nation was dead. So, the story about Tippi Hedren is a true story. The movie star was Giu Jin, the most famous Vietnamese movie star of the 1960s and 1970s. And Tippi Hedren um, took such pity on the Vietnamese refugees that she encountered that she had her personal manicurist come and train some of these women in the arts of manicuring. Which is how, 40 years later, Vietnamese refugees have come to own 51% of the nail salon industry in this country. (laughs) Which is either a pro-refugee story or an anti-refugee story, depending on your point of view. So, I am very much concerned with war and with refugees. That's my history. And my history uh, leads me, I think, to a different understanding of war than what many Americans have and possibly many people the world over. I think for Americans and for many people the world over, war is something typically fought by men and soldiers. And for Americans in particular, war is something that's fought over there, somewhere else. But for most people in the world, war is fought in their own countries, in their own land. And for those people, war is not only about soldiers. It's about civilians, too. I mean, you have to remember that the Vietnam War was not unusual in the fact that more civilians died during that war than soldiers did. And that's a fact of the 20th century. So how can we imagine that war is about soldiers when more civilians die than soldiers in war? You know, we imagine war in that way in order to contain the meaning of war in order to segregate it, in order to understand it, in order to allow us to say war is hell and understand that rationally and yet with every generation go to war again. Because we believe we're not implicated in it. We, as in those people who are not in the military, because it's soldiers who fight war. But my understanding of war is very different. My understanding of war, and I share this understanding with Maxine, is that war is total. War is the military-industrial complex. There's a great passage in The Brother in Vietnam from Chinaman and Maxine's book where she describes how opening the door of your refrigerator means that you are involved. Because the companies that manufacture the refrigerator, that manufacture the coolant that goes into the refrigerator, that manufactures the plastic that encases your food, those companies are part of the same corporations that manufacture Agent Orange and the bombs that go out to do the carpet bombing. So we pay our taxes. We're involved in war. But we don't, we don't want to think about that. There's a, there's a great chapter in Tim O'Brien's The Things I Carried, which I think many of you have probably read. And the chapter is how to tell a true war story. And he gets at some of the truth of the war story. He talks about how war stories are contradictory. They're terrible, but they're also fascinating. They're dangerous, but they're also thrilling. That's why we go to war, go to war over and over again. That's why we like to hear war stories. But he doesn't tell us that war is also really boring. That's the war story we don't want to hear. We'll we'll watch anti-war movies forever, and we're going to keep on going to war because we're thrilled by the spectacle of war that's found in anti-war stories. But a true anti-war story would show us how boring war really is and how implicated all of us are in war, and we don't want to watch that kind of story. So much of my work is about bringing attention to this much more total, complicating, contradictory, uneasy dimension of war that involves soldiers and civilians and war machines and all of us and involves refugees as well. I teach a class on the Vietnam War and my students go and interview survivors of the Vietnam War of all backgrounds. And one of the things that they discover is that when they interview American veterans of the war, they discover that the majority of their interviewees never saw combat Some of them did see combat, saw saw terrible things that disturbed them to this day. But the majority went to Germany or sat on a base in the United States or were on on a ship in the Navy or were guarding a base somewhere in Vietnam. They never saw combat. Southeast Asian refugees who survived the war that my students interviewed, every single one of those people has a horrible story, has a traumatic story, have suffered much more than those soldiers who never saw combat. That's Those are war stories, and yet we don't think of them as war stories. So that's why it's been really important for me, wherever I go, to repeat again and again that I'm not an immigrant. I'm a refugee. And The Sympathizer is not an immigrant novel. It's a war novel. Because when the novel came out, there were a lot of reviews that said, this is is a novel in the great tradition of the immigrant story. And he is an immigrant writer. And I said, no, that's not true. Because using that idea of the immigrant also contains unpleasant meanings for Americans as well. Because even if today the pendulum has swung so that we are, uh, as a society, leaning against open immigration, nevertheless, the idea of the immigrant is absolutely a part of the American mythology, a part of the American dream. We welcome people here, and they can... Be upwardly mobile And they can fulfill This American dream That makes us feel good as well So We look at Koreans We look at Filipinos And we think Those are just immigrants And we forget That the reason why Koreans and Filipinos Are here in this country Is because the United States Colonized the Philippines for 50 years And carpet bombed All of Korea During the Korean War And killed You know That war killed 2 million Koreans Which most people don't know about so, to think of people as refugees brings up histories of war that make us uncomfortable. That's why I insist that I'm a refugee and that I tell war stories. So, many people have also asked me to talk about my personal biography, to get a little bit of a, of a clue as to why I write the things that I write. So, I'll share a little bit of my story with you from an essay called America and Me that I published in the Financial Times a couple of months ago. I'm a refugee, an American and a human being, which is important to proclaim, as there are many who think these identities cannot be reconciled. In March 1975, as Saigon was about to fall, my humanity was temporarily put into question as I became a refugee. My family lived in Ban Matut, famous for its coffee, and for being the first town overrun by communist invasion. My father was in Saigon on business, and my mother had no way to contact him. She took my 10-year-old brother and 4-year-old me and we walked 184 kilometers to the nearest port in Yajang. I admit to possibly being carried. (laughs) At least it was downhill. At least I was too young, unlike my brother, to remember the dead paratroopers hanging from the trees. I'm grateful not to remember the terror and the chaos that must have been involved in finding a boat. We made it to Saigon and reunited with my father. And a month later, when the communists arrived, repeated the mad scramble for our lives. That summer, we arrived in America. I came to understand that in the United States, land of the fabled American dream, it is un-American to be a refugee. The refugee embodies fear, failure, and flight. Americans of all kinds, black and white, believe that it is impossible for an American to become a refugee, although it is possible for refugees to become Americans and in that way be elevated one step closer to heaven. The average American or European who feels that refugees or immigrants threaten their jobs does not recognize that the real culprits for their economic plight are the corporate interests and individuals that want to take the profits and are perfectly happy to see the struggling pitted against each other. The economic interests of the unwanted and the fearful middle class are aligned, but so many can't see that because of how much they fear the different, the refugee, the immigrant. In its most naked form, this is racism. In a more polite form, it takes the shape of defending one's culture, where one would rather remain economically poor but ethnically pure. This fear is a powerful force, and I admit to being afraid of it. Then I think of my parents, who were younger than me when they lost nearly everything and became refugees. I can't help but remember how, after we settled in San Jose, California, and my parents opened a Vietnamese grocery store in the Runtown downtown, a neighboring store put a sign up in its window, another American driven out of business by the Vietnamese. <clears throat> but my parents did not give in to fear, even though they must have been afraid. And I think of my son, nearly the age I was when I became a refugee, and while I do not want him to be afraid, I know he will be. What is important is that he have the strength to overcome his fear. And the way to overcome fear is to demand the America that should be and can be. The America that dreams the best version of itself. Another way to overcome fear is to tell stories. To tell stories about what we can be, what we should be. And that's what I do. And I'll continue the story of my parents. They were part of this wave of Vietnamese refugees who came into downtown San Jose when no one else wanted to be there in the late 1970s. And they built these shops, and they struggled, and they survived. My parents worked 12 to 14 hour days almost every day of the year. They were shot in that store. Downtown, City Hall couldn't care less. Until Silicon Valley money flooded the valley. And then in the early in the late 90s, they decided that they needed a new city hall to reflect the grandeur of Silicon Valley. And they picked the property right across the street from my parents. And they built City Hall, there. And they took my parents' property and they used eminent domain to take it away. And my parents had to sue to get a fair price on that property. And I thought for years and years that they built a parking garage on my parents' property. And that idea was so painful for me, not because of the money, but because of the symbolism of everything that my parents had gone through. That all that would be gone and you would have a parking garage which is about a very unique American contribution to the world. (laughs) Um, So for years and years, whenever I would go back to San Jose, which was also a very painful experience for me, I would never go to that part of downtown. I would always avoid it. And then last year, I won the Pulitzer Prize. And then San Jose City Hall remembered that I'm from San Jose. (laughs) Viet, come back to San Jose. I'd like to give you an award in City Hall. I'd never seen City Hall. So I went and I stood outside City Hall and I realized that they did not build that parking garage after all. They built a parking lot to add insult to injury. (laughs) And so my parents had not driven out Americans from downtown. They had rebuilt downtown. They had made downtown great again. (laughs) Uh So when I hear the phrase, make America great again, I hear a story. It's the same story as another American driven out of business by the Vietnamese. And it's a story that I need to fight. Everywhere I go Because for people like me America wasn't great Before It could be great in the future But only if we fight for it Only if we remember A certain kind of history Only if we Dare to tell the stories That would make America great Even when I finished writing this Essay about America and me I hesitated at the end Because even saying the word America is hard. You know why? Because the American mythology is so powerful. You say America and all of that mythology about immigration, upward mobility, the American dream, pours into people. And it makes them forget that you can actually say all these wonderful things about America, about democracy, diversity, inclusion, welcoming people like me and welcoming refugees. You could say all those kinds of things and then at the same time authorize drone strikes and carpet bombing overseas that would create the refugees that need to be rescued by America. That contradiction is also part of America as well. It's a very hard truth for many Americans to face, but it's the truth that I deal with in my work. So I'm going to end with two readings that reflect or express how I've tried to approach this truth in different ways. As I was, you know, (laughs) falling asleep in Maxine's class, uh, (laughs) I did have a sense of mission, you know. I did want to write stories about Vietnamese people. I was writing stories about Vietnamese people in Maxine's class. I was writing about my mother in Maxine's class. Because what I wanted to do was to humanize Vietnamese people. Because in the 1970s and 1980s, you know, I read a lot of books about the Vietnam War because I wanted to know what, what had brought me to this country, what had shaped me. And I, and I watched, I think, almost every single movie Hollywood made about the Vietnam War, which is an exercise I don't recommend to anybody. <laughs> but it was especially painful for a Vietnamese person like me. Because I realized that when Americans say Vietnam, they mean the Vietnam War. And when they say the Vietnam War, they mean the American War which is to say what this war meant for Americans. It's an irony, because 58,000 Americans plus died in the Vietnam War, and this is a tremendous human tragedy. But 3 million Vietnamese people died in the Vietnam War, and 3 million Cambodians and Laotians died in the Vietnam War. But I bet that most Americans would be hard-pressed to even know that Cambodia and Laos were involved in this. Yeah. And this is bipartisan. Jimmy Carter, 1978, said this was a war of mutual destruction. You can only say that through an act of willful amnesia or blindness. And so I thought, I have to humanize Vietnamese people. They don't even exist as human beings for Americans. Because if you watch these Vietnam War movies, which is how most people have any sense of what Vietnam even means, the role of the Vietnamese is to be silent, to be shot, to be killed, to be raped, to scream... Or when they have something to say, to say thank you. And so I thought, those are not the stories that I'm hearing from Vietnamese people in the Vietnamese refugee community of San Jose. These were stories of loss and bitterness and sadness and melancholia. And I thought, I have to tell stories about that. And so that's why I began writing these short stories that became The Refugees. And this is the opening uh, few pages from the book, from a story called Black-Eyed Women. Fame would strike someone, usually the kind that healthy-minded people would not wish upon themselves, such as being kidnapped and kept prisoner for years, humiliated in a sex scandal, or surviving something typically fatal. These survivors needed someone to help write their memoirs, and their agents might eventually come across me. At least your name's not on anything, my mother once said. When I mentioned that I would not mind being thanked in the acknowledgments, she said, "'Let me tell you a story.'" it would be the first time I heard this story, but not the last. In our homeland, she went on, there was a reporter who said, the government tortured the people in prison. So the government does to him exactly what he said they did to others. They send him away, and no one ever sees him again. That's what happens to writers who put their names on things. By the time Victor DeVoto chose me, I had resigned myself to being one of those writers whose names did not appear on things. His agent had given him a book that I had ghostwritten. Its ostensible author, the father of a boy who had shot and killed several people at his school. I identify with the father's guilt, Victor said to me. He was the sole survivor of an airplane crash, 173 others having perished, including his wife and children. What was left of him appeared on all the talk shows, his body there, but not much else. The voice was a soft monotone, and the eyes, on the occasions they looked up, seemed to hold within them the silhouettes of mournful people. His publisher said that it was urgent that he finish his story while audiences still remembered the tragedy, and this was my preoccupation on the day my dead brother returned to me. My mother woke me while it was still dark outside and said, Don't be afraid. Through my open door, the light from the hallway stung. Why would I be afraid? When she said my brother's name, I did not think of my brother. He had died long ago. I closed my eyes and said, I did not know anyone by that name. But she persisted. He's here to see us, she said, stripping off my covers and tugging at me. Until I rose Eyes half shut She was 63 Moderately forgetful And when she led me to the living room And cried out I was not surprised He was right here, she said Kneeling by her floral armchair As she felt the carpet It's wet She crawled to the front door in her cotton pajamas Following the trail When I touched the carpet It was damp For a moment I twitched in belief and the silence of the house at four in the morning felt ominous. Then I noticed the sound of rainwater in the gutters and the fear that had gripped my neck relaxed its hold. My mother must have opened the door, gotten drenched, then come back inside. I knelt by her as she crouched next to the door, her hand on the knob and said, you're imagining things. I know what I saw. Brushing my hand off her shoulder, she stood up, anger illuminating her dark eyes. He walked. He talked. He wanted to see you. Then where is he, Matt? I don't see anyone. Of course you don't, she sighed, as if I were the one, unable to grasp the obvious. He's a ghost, isn't he? Ever since my father died a few years ago, My mother and I lived together politely. We shared a passion for words, but I preferred the silence of writing while she loved to talk. She constantly fed me gossip and stories, the only kind I enjoyed concerning my father back when he was a man I did not know, young and happy. Then came stories of terror, like the one about the reporter. And finally, there was her favorite kind, the ghost story, of which she knew many, some firsthand. Aunt Six died of a heart attack at 76, she told me once, twice, or perhaps three times, repetition being her habit. I never took her story seriously. She lived in Vongdao, and we were in Yajiang. I was bringing dinner to the table when I saw Aunt Six sitting there in her nightgown. Her long gray hair, which she usually wore in a chignon, was loose and fell over her shoulders and in her face. I almost dropped the dishes. When I asked her what she was doing there, she just smiled. She stood up, kissed me, and turned me toward the kitchen. When I turned around again to see her, she was gone. It was her ghost. Uncle confirmed it when I called. She had passed away that morning in her own bed. Aunt Six died a good death, according to my mother, at home and with family, her ghost simply making the rounds to say farewell. My mother repeated her aunt's story while we sat at the kitchen table the morning she claimed to have seen my brother, her son. I had brewed her a pot of green tea and taken her temperature despite her protests, the result being, as she had predicted, normal. Waving the thermometer at me, she said he must have disappeared because he was tired. After all, he had just completed a journey of thousands of miles across the Pacific. So, how did he get here? He swam. (laughs) She gave me a pitying look. That's why he was wet. He was an excellent swimmer, I said, humoring her. What did he look like? Exactly the same. It's been 25 years. He hasn't changed at all. They always look exactly the same as when you last saw them. I remembered how he looked the last time, and any humor that I felt vanished. The stunned look on his face The open eyes that did not flinch Even with the splintered board of the boat's deck Pressing against his cheek I did not want to see him again Assuming there was something or someone to see After my mother left for her shift at the salon I tried to go back to sleep but could not His eyes stared at me whenever I closed my own Only now was I conscious of not having remembered him for months. I had long struggled to forget him, but just by turning a corner in the world or in my mind, I could run into him, my best friend. From as far back as I can recall, I could hear his voice outside our house calling my name. That was my signal to follow him down our village's lanes and pathways, through jackfruit and mangrove groves to the dikes and fields, dodging shattered palm trees and bomb craters. At the time, this was a normal childhood. Looking back, however, I could see that we had passed our youth in a haunted country. Our father had been drafted, and we feared that he would never return. Before he left, he had dug a bomb shelter next to our home, a sandbagged bunker whose roof was braced by timber. Even though it was hot and airless, dank with the odor of the earth and alive with the movement of worms, we often went to play there as little children. When we were older, we went to study and tell stories. I was the best student in my school, excellent enough for my teacher to teach me English after hours, lessons I shared with my brother. He, in turn, told me tall tales, folklore, and rumors. When airplanes shrieked overhead and we huddled with my mother in the bunker, he whispered ghost stories in my ear to distract me. Except, he insisted, they were not ghost stories. They were historical accounts from reliable sources. The ancient crones who chewed betel nut and spat its red juice while squatting on their haunches in the market tending coal stoves or overseeing baskets of wares. Our land's confirmed residence, they said, included the upper half of a Korean lieutenant launched by a mine into the branches of a rubber tree, a scalped black American floating in the creek not far from his downed helicopter, his eyes and the exposed half-moon of his brain glistening above the water, and a decapitated Japanese private groping through cassava shrubbery. For his head These invaders Came to conquer our land And now would never go home The old lady said Cackling And exposing lacquered teeth Or so my brother told me I shivered with delight In the gloom Hearing those black eyed women With my own ears And it seemed to me That I would never Tell stories like those So I ended up being the one telling stories like those. And after the refugees, I decided that I was done trying to humanize Vietnamese people. Because I realized people from the majority, from dominant culture, never have to humanize themselves. They take their humanity for granted. They're so comfortable with their humanity, they can acknowledge their inhumanity at times. And I felt that if I were to write a novel... In the sympathizer that could aspire to change the American story or change the world story of the Vietnamese, I had to claim both humanity and inhumanity, which is why I made the sympathizer the person that he is. In this last episode that I'm going to read, you'll see perhaps a little bit of that inhumanity uh, in an episode where he gets a job. As the authenticity consultant On the making of a movie that looks Suspiciously like Apocalypse Now <laughs> But if Francis Ford Coppola were to ask Is not Apocalypse Now <laughs> So he's going to meet with his famous director Known only as the auteur my meeting with the tour had gone on for a while longer, mostly in a more subdued fashion, with me pointing out that the lack of speaking parts for Vietnamese people in a movie set in Vietnam might be interpreted as cultural insensitivity. Do you not think it would be a little more believable, I said? A little more realistic? A little more authentic? For a movie set in a certain country, for the people in that country... To have something to say? Instead of having your screenplay direct as it does now, cut to villagers speaking in their own language. Do you think it might not be decent to let them actually say something instead of simply acknowledging that there's some kind of sound coming from their mouths? Could you not even just have them speak a heavily accented English? You know what I mean, ching-chong English. Just to pretend they are speaking in an Asian language That somehow American audiences can strangely understand <laughs> The auteur grimaced And said Very interesting Great stuff Loved it But I had a question What was it? Oh yes Yes How many movies have you made? None. Zero. Zilch. Nada. Nothing. And however you say it in your language. So thank you for telling me how to do my job. Now get the hell out of my house and come back after you've made a movie or two. Maybe then I'll listen to one or two of your cheap ideas. You know, since I published The Sympathizer, I've had the opportunity to meet a few Hollywood people, <laughs> and none of them dispute this characterization. <laughs> I confess to being angry with the auteur, but was I wrong in being angry? This was especially the case when he acknowledged he did not even know that Montagnard was simply a French catch all term for the dozens of Highland minorities. So the movie is called The Hamlet, and it's about American Green Berets who are dispatched to this highlands hamlet where they're going to train the Montagnards in defending themselves against the Viet Cong. What if, I said to him, I wrote a screenplay about the American West and simply called all the natives Indians? You don't want to know whether the cavalry was fighting the Navajo or Apache or Comanche, right? Likewise. I would want to know when you say these people are Montagnards whether we speak of the brew or the num or the tay. Let me tell you a secret the auteur said. You ready? Here it is. No one gives a shit. <laughs> he was amused by my wordlessness. To see me without words is like seeing one of those Egyptian felines without hair, a rare and not necessarily desirable occasion. How could I be so dense? How could I be so deluded? I naively believed that I could divert the Hollywood organism from its goal, the simultaneous lobotomization and pickpocketing of the world's audiences. Hollywood did not just make horror movie monsters it was its own horror movie monster smashing me under its foot I had failed and the auteur would make the hamlet as he intended with my countrymen serving merely as raw material for an epic about white men saving good yellow people from bad yellow people I pitied the French for the naivete in believing they had to visit a country in order to exploit it. <laughs> Hollywood was much more efficient, imagining the countries it wanted to exploit. I was maddened by my helplessness before the auteurs' imagination and machinations. His arrogance marked something new in the world for this was the first war where the losers would write history instead of the victors courtesy of the most efficient propaganda machine ever created with all due respect to Joseph Goebbels and the Nazis who never achieved global domination. Hollywood's high priests understood innately the observation of Milton's Satan that it was better to rule in hell than serve in heaven better to be villain loser or anti-hero than virtuous extra so long as one commanded the bright lights of center stage in this forthcoming Hollywood trompe all the Vietnamese of any side would come out poorly herded into the roles of the poor the innocent the evil or the corrupt our fate was not to be merely mute we were to be struck dumb. Thank you.
0: That concludes the reading for this event. Up next is the conversation.
1: Cheers. It really should be scotch up here. I really yes. wish they would make that a tradition.
2: <laughs> yes, we could use it. Okay. The sympathizer begins with a narrator identifying himself as a spook, a spy, a sleeper. At the end of his confession, he writes of awaking. So, you slept in my class. Which I did not see. Um, You you might have slept with your eyes open.
1: I have another story, by the way.
2: Oh, okay. (laughs) But if you
1: finish your question, I'll tell the story. Okay.
2: Well, you inscribed my copy of the Sympathizer, saying, "Like my narrator, I took a long time to wake up." Please speak to us about waking. And is it like becoming conscious? Is it like enlightenment?
1: The other story (laughs) is that at the end of the semester, I don't know if you remember this, but you wrote, I think you wrote all the students a note. Yeah. Right. And so I have the note. I have the note. It's a page long. And in the note, it acknowledges that I was asleep. So I think you did notice you kindly have forgotten over time and uh, the final recommendation is that Cal has excellent counseling services you should make use of <laughs> Um which is actually accurate you know, but you know what I, I never made use of the counseling services I became a writer instead um, it's, much, it's much much cheaper uh, but for me to be a writer to become a writer which took a long time you know, I think it took 20 years before I could call myself a writer. 20 years of writing and writing and struggling and struggling, and that was a process of waking up, uh, not just waking up intellectually, which I had already begun at Berkeley under your in your class and in many other classes. I was struck by intellectual lightning and political lightning at Berkeley. I became radicalized, became an Asian American, became politically committed. So I thought I was awake because that's what it means to be woke, right? And that's the metaphor that's in the novel and and, um, that is so often used to describe the coming, uh, coming into political consciousness. But what I wasn't awake to was my emotions. That's a different kind of awakening. And that's why the reason I was falling asleep in your class was because I was going out and doing all this political activism and staying up late and didn't have the energy for the class. And that was probably because I was also avoiding what it is that writing provokes, which is not simply political consciousness, but emotional consciousness. And so I think that that has been really crucial for me as a writer, to try to figure out how to do these two things at the same time. You know, that one of the reasons why revolutions fail is because they're all about politics, and they're not enough about emotions. And that's what the ending of The Sympathizer is about. He recognizes that for to become a revolutionary, you have to have sympathy for people. You have to feel for people who... Are, are, are lacking justice. And then you come into power as a revolutionary and then you want to enact justice and you have to stop feeling for people because you have to put them in re-education camps or execute them or whatever. That's the contradiction at the heart of the novel and also at the heart of my own struggle to become a writer as well, to talk about politics and emotions at the same time.
2: But how does writing get the emotions flowing? because for me, emotions come first, and the emotions are chaotic and wordless. And my task is to find the words for them. But the way I hear you speak, the uh, writing evokes emotion? How does that work?
1: I think our process is very different. And yeah. it's probably you know, okay. grounded in who I am as a person, my inclination to be political, my inclination to be academic, and then all the schooling that I, that I did to get a PhD. It's hard to remove that from me. And so I think uh, I did approach writing rationally. Like when writing the, the, the refugees, for example, I had an Excel sheet where I said, okay, I have a story about a woman, I have to have a story about a man, older older person, younger person. You know, so it was very politically, you know, it was very consciously crafted and so was the sympathizer. And, you know, in terms of uh, writing, what I had to do was to try to, you know, allow, get deep enough into a character or a story to find the emotions that are there. But I didn't start with the emotions. And so for me, I'm still learning how to do that. And it's through becoming a father, which has tapped into all kinds of emotions I didn't know I had uh, through meeting other writers. I did this reading with Ocean Vuong at the LA Public Library. He's a great poet, by the way. Uh, um, uh, the night Sky, exit, night sky is, as Exit Wounds. Uh, you really should read his book, and you should really see him in person. You should bring him here to Lannan. Um, because when, you, when, I saw him, when I saw him read and speak, he's very emotional. That's who he yeah. is. That was very powerful. But I've always, you know, I spent a lifetime trying to repress that because to allow the emotions come out you saw that you know I was like uh, this is a new thing for me to talk about my parents to let myself feel that emotion on stage because it's very scary it's very frightening for me because, because I've spent a lifetime trying to contain those emotions and to be a writer means to try to excavate them
2: the last sentence in the sympathizer we will live it's in italics it's an uh, exclamation point we will live. So, at the end of the book, the refugees are, are on a boat. They're at sea. We don't know what will become of them. And then throughout the book, there's spies and counter-spies and counter-counter-spies, uh, frenemies, and they've, they're betraying one another. They're torturing one another, so to me, that sentence, we will live, it rings out of nowhere. Where does it come from? And where does that hope come from?
1: You know, once I submitted a story to the Atlantic Monthly, and the fiction editor wrote back and said, where's the hope in this story? <laughs> yeah, well, <You> know? <laughs> and I was like, why do you need hope? This is some kind of silly humanistic ideal. And... Uh, um, so, so, so when I reached the end of The Sympathizer, I thought, oh, shoot, where is the hope in this, in this book? So
2: you just you shoehorned it in? Right, oh, yes. You know, that's a phrase that I learned from my editor.
1: Yeah. And he
2: said, well, you just shoehorned that thing
1: in? Yes, but there is a dramatic justification for it. <laughs> I, I felt like, yes, it is me, the author, putting that in, but in the guise of this character, the sympathizer, And basically, by the end of the novel, he's a destroyed person. He's not, he's not healthy. You know, so he's, we spend 90% of the novel watching him gradually unravel and be destroyed. And then in the last chapter, you know, he's trying to put himself back together. There's no way he's going to be able to put himself back together in the space of a few months after what's happened to him, right? But he is trying. He's trying to hold himself together. All these fragments have now been blown up. And so that last line, we will live... That's his attempt to be hopeful. And it's meant to be desperate because he's trying to hang on to this last fragment of hope before he gets on that refugee boat and sets out on the open sea for a journey that he knows is at best a 50-50 chance. But he has to tell himself that. We have to tell ourselves that. If we actually think about the forces that we're confronting, we have to tell ourselves that.
2: Yeah, I, I like your uh, explaining it to me in this sort of non-poetic, layman's language. Uh, and uh, I, I think it's a, a wonderful way to end that book because uh, it, it's it's mysterious. We don't know where it comes from. And it forces us to, to try to work it out. Okay, now I'm going to ask you a question that's sort of like... Um, uh, well, it, it's a question I would have asked you in class.
1: Uh, I'll, I'll try to do better this time. Yes, yeah. yes,
2: yes. He, he, you know, he never spoke in class. So you so, do
1: remember. Yes, I you do. I do remember. I <laughs> do remember oh, yeah, 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 yeah. But so, that's
2: not the same as being asleep. <laughs> not talking Actually, it's yes, not now the you rem- same. Now
1: I remember. The letter was actually much more cutting than that. Oh. Because... <laughs> It, you actually said that you did not say a word in class That's
2: true, you That's it, And I did it And you said
1: you have to give more of yourself to your, your fellow students and Yes, you were I right. did But I was also yes. very shy
2: yeah.
1: <laughs> Well, that got me yeah.
2: So, you might remember that uh, in this class Which was called Reading for Writers I assigned William Carlos Williams in the American Grain uh, Did you read it?
1: I did <laughs> I did there were four books. There were four books, and I read all four of them. That's... Oh, very good. Okay. <laughs> so, but I didn't get it. I did oh. not get it. Okay. In the American Grit.
2: So, in in the book, um, William Carlos Williams has he he, he gives the the the, the mythic uh, history of America, and uh, he he has. Um, Ponce de Leon comes to the Caribbean, and uh, and there, and he just slaughters the uh, Caribs, and uh, the uh, uh, he unpeoples those islands, and uh, uh, Williams is saying uh, uh, the, uh, the the people that were slaughtered uh, they had a language. How can you, they, you do this? And there, there's a bloody scene where they're fighting at sea. And uh, the dogs are, are uh, uh, the water is churning with blood. and The dogs are, are killed. Uh, the sharks are there. Women, uh, babies, and, and blood. And, uh, and William says, we are the slaughterers. And uh, then he says, do these things die? Men who do not know what lives are themselves dead. In the heart there are living Indians, one slaughtered and defrauded. Do these things die? And then you come up with this book, which I thought this William Carlos Williams asked the question, do these things die? And Viet Thanh Nguyen, nothing ever dies. Mm. Okay, so was that your answer to Williams? And, and tell us about uh, your, uh, your, your, your way of thinking of
1: history. You know, I think now that I'm a teacher too, I can say we as teachers... Have to believe that sometimes we plant a seed in students, and it'll grow later, even if they don't know it that the seed was planted. So no, I don't remember that scene from William Carlos Williams in the American Grade. And you know what? But I remember remember the the
2: question. The question: Do these things die?
1: I don't remember any of that. But you know what? I remember. (laughs) I remember the book Uh because in writing, uh, nothing ever dies. I actually went and got the William Carlos Williams book in the American Grain. And I thought, I'm going to have to reread this book. And then I ran out of time. So I didn't reread it. Now I will. Uh, But I think the point is that it must have stayed with me. You know, as writers, we absorb all kinds of things that we don't know. This is my excuse. It must have stayed with me. I did read it. I saw the words. And somehow they lodged somewhere in the back of my mind. But also William Carlos Williams, uh, you know, you and he and Toni Morrison are asking some of the same questions. You're investigating the same history. Even if you're dealing with Chinese Americans or Chinese immigrants, you're investigating the same America that he's mm-hmm. talking about. And so is Toni Morrison, right? So we're, And I'm a part of that quest, too, which is why I could turn to Toni Morrison and get Nothing Ever Dies out of Beloved. Right? Mm-hmm. And I don't think that's a coincidence that this is the group of writers that I affiliate with. You, Morrison, William Carlos Williams, people who acknowledge ourselves as Americans, but not just for the American dream, but for the blood as well.
2: So you named your son Ellison. Um, Is it because of your admiration for the African-American writers?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think um, when I was at Berkeley, I took uh, African-American literature with Professor Barbara Christian. I don't Mm -hmm. know if you knew her. Oh, yes, I I do. She was incredible. She was incredible, you know. And I learned so much in that class, just as I learned so much in all the ethnic studies courses uh, on Chicano literature, Asian-American literature, and so on that I took. But African-American literature made a particular impression on me because of the combination of anger, critique, and art that was happening in, the, in that tradition. And the, the peak of that in her class for me was Ralph Ellison's Invisible Man. And I wrote a very long paper on Invisible Man for her in that class. And, I, and I, that, that book made such a huge impression uh, because I thought uh, it was narratively a great read and politically it was very, very compelling. And so I thought somewhere in me at that time, I thought maybe one day I could hope to aspire to write something like this. And so when it came time to plot The Sympathizer and to try to figure out what the architecture of the book was, I I very much thought about um, uh, Invisible Man. And then I went and reread Invisible Man. And then I realized I still love that book, but I also disagree with it too, with the maturity or the difference in me of being 20 years older. And the difference was that, you know, in Invisible Man, it's about a guy, a man, young man, who... Is an every, African American everyman and he goes through his political consciousness and then his disillusionment and then he retreats into a hole and then he emerges at the end of the book thinking he has something to contribute after all as an individual and I thought that's where I disagree with Ralph Ellison. I think this is why one reason why Invisible Man was as, was as recognized as it was in the 1950s because it spoke to the political mood of the day that had grappled with grew up communism and rejected it in favor of of the American individual. And I knew that in writing The Sympathizer, I was dealing with some of the same territory about a communist idealist who was going to be disillusioned. And the ending that the American publishing industry wanted from me was to say at the end, goodbye communism, hello America. That was the end. And I wasn't going to give them that. Did they actually
2: uh, advise you to uh, how to end that book?
1: No one is so crass as to say something like that. But uh, they, they
2: do it subtly?
1: Yeah, and as a, as a scholar and as a critic, mm-hmm. I read the signs. I read, I read the evidence. And the evidence is 13 out of 14 publishers rejected the manuscript, mm-hmm. right? And including the editor who edited another Pulitzer Prize winning novel, The Orphan Master's Son, which has something of the same plot. And The Orphan Master's Son is written for Americans. It's about North Koreans, but it's written for Americans. Because at the end, it's North Korean communism is terrible, American dream is good. And that book came out while I was writing The Sympathizer. And I like that book a lot. Narratively, it's a great read. But ideologically, I completely disagree (laughs) with it.
2: So... The, uh, these 14 times that you sent it out, uh, did you send the same manuscript out or did you change it before the next one? And did you change it before somebody actually accepted it?
1: That's an interesting alternate universe. That would have been really a miserable experience and <laughs> would have tested my integrity. Um, but no, what we did was we, we, my, my agent sent it out uh, to all these editors who, who he had handpicked. He's a very smart agent. He said, these are the editors who are most likely to like your book for what it is. And, and then on one day, he said, this is the auction. And we're going to wait and we're going to wait to see what people say. And he warned me in advance. He said, sometimes these auctions happen and, and, and nobody bids on the book. And I said, okay, I understand that's the reality. But inside of me, I thought, no, that's not going to happen. And so... Okay, here's, here's more backstory. So I love Ellison, right, Ralph Ellison. And so uh, there was a deadline for finishing my novel, which was that my, my wife was going to give birth. Um, and I finished the first draft of the novel two days before my son was born, and we named him Ellison, very deliberately after Ralph Ellison and African-American literature. Um, so my son, three months old at the time that we, we send this book out, uh, uh, I, I had the morning shift So I would revise the novel Until about 3 in the morning While I'm watching over this lump That's my son lump. <laughs> a lump you know, it Doesn't do much uh, And then 3 a.m. I would start drinking scotch 5 a.m. I would fall asleep And my wife would take over Anyway, so that's my schedule When we send the book out The manuscript out And I thought, okay, I'm going to fall asleep at 5 in the morning, and then when I get up, it'll be like, uh, you know, 1 or 2 in the afternoon, and that'll be like 4 or 5 p.m. New York time, and the auction will be over, okay? But my son, of course, chooses that day to be really disturbing and wakes me up at 10 in the morning. So I'm in bed from 10 until about 2 as the rejections come in one by one. And my agent, bless his heart, sends each one to me, okay? And so it's like, this is the worst day of my... Almost the worst... Possibly the worst day of my life. Um, uh, and and uh, no one says it's because it doesn't affirm the American dream. But, you know, when they say stuff like, yeah, I couldn't crawl into the voice of this character, or I just didn't like the language. I think they're... You know, it, it's hard to, not, to, not to think that I didn't give them the happy ending, mm-hmm. the hopeful ending, which is the American mm-hmm. ending that Americans oh, so want.
2: So then you put in italics we will live mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> that, that's <Yeah>. it <laughs> so does your son does Ellison also have a Vietnamese name
1: uh, Ellison Dai Zung Nguyen Zung, Zung is Nguyen. Um, the last name of his mother Dai means fortune, no wait what does it mean No, Dai means talent in Vietnamese and um, my dad didn't like that name you mm-hmm. know and uh, I thought, why? I, I, I went through all this. I went through all this effort to come up with a Vietnamese name for him, you know. And I don't know. I think I think maybe we understand the word, the name, literally, but you know, we don't understand what it means connotatively. Whatever, however, maybe maybe it's like you know, maybe it's an old-fashioned Vietnamese name, and he didn't want that. We thought it meant literary talent, but I think it means financial talent.
2: Oh, oh, oh. well, it could be both. Hopefully, uh, yes, yeah. <laughs> yes. Okay, then now my husband Earl. He 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 wants to ask this question. He's just delighted by an image that you have in, in uh, one of your short stories. And so there's a. Uh, it's in Saigon, and, uh, and we are seeing the streets, and uh, and, and there are uh, uh, lots of uh, street businesses going on, and there is a uh, a masseur. Is that the same as a masseuse? Is it same thing, Monsieur? Mm -hmm. And uh, and he advertises his business by having a um, he's shaking a bottle and there's pebbles inside. So and Earl finds that just delightful. I do too. And uh, so. Uh, did you make that up? Did you witness it? Uh, uh, do they actually do that? And, uh, and also, what I wonder is, what does shaking that bottle have to do with massage?
1: <laughs> <laughs> so, I, I got to Vietnam, and I think uh, the, first, uh, the second time I was there, we stayed for, for seven months. And I would see, at night only, by the way, at night, I would see these young men, you know, neatly dressed, slacks, white shirt, riding their bicycles on the streets, shaking this bottle with the pebbles in it. I was like, what is, what is that? I don't know what that means. And, and there were many things in Vietnam I did not understand the meaning of. And uh, I finally figured it out when I went out this, on, onto the street once and I saw one of these men um, had parked his bike, put down his bottle, and he had spread a reed mat onto the sidewalk. And there was another guy lying on that reed mat with his shirt off and the guy, the other man, was giving him the massage, and I thought that is so Vietnamese. This totally makes sense to me, you know. And uh, it was such a, such a vivid detail that embodied the country at that time, and possibly, possibly, still does about just the, just what people had to do in order to survive and the makeshift ways in which they found ways to make a living. But what about the Bottom. You know? <laughs> well that okay they, they were, that was how they announced that they were traveling through the area and was it was that to, was to a make call. a sound
2: yeah 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 oh, yeah. and it's for other businesses too or? I only
1: saw it with those guys oh. and maybe there was i don't know maybe there's another business underneath that. I have mm-hmm. no idea no. <laughs> Well, I heard
2: you tell Terry Gross that you're not good at having fun mm-hmm. and uh Is that true? And um, can you tell us one fun thing that you have done lately?
1: (laughs) No, um, I am not good at having fun. I blame my parents, you know, devout Catholics who... How
2: did you hear her say, oh, dear? Yeah, well...
1: well, You know, one day my son will say, I blame my dad for whatever it is. And, you know, but devout Catholic, you have to understand, Vietnamese Catholics are a special breed of Catholic. Mm -hmm. Special breed of Catholic. Um, My parents were born in the same region as Ho Chi Minh. And that region is famous for for producing hardcore revolutionaries and hardcore Catholics. (laughs) So my life could have taken a different direction. But whatever direction it took, I would have turned out hardcore. Um... Mm -hmm. And so I, I grew up just watching them not having fun, just working all the time and sacrificing themselves one way or another to God or to capitalism um, <laughs> and uh, i 've absorbed that spirit, so even though i 'm pretty much an atheist uh, I, I I work really, really hard, and when I, when i don 't work hard, I feel really bad, you know <laughs> uh, and so I can you know the last fun thing I did was probably go out on a date with my wife I do but it's part of work. You know, we present the calendar, <laughs> have a date with my wife, you know, three hours, we'll go to dinner, hire the babysitter. That's, that's, that's as much fun as I can allow myself.
2: I did hear you use the word fun at the beginning of your talk. And you, you it was something about the fun of writing The Sympathizer.
1: Mm-hmm. Oh, I enjoyed it, I enjoyed it. Oh, but you know, okay, but in order to get to the fun, let me put, let me put it into context. I had to work really, really hard. So <laughs> I, I set out to write um, short stories in Berkeley, at Berkeley as an undergraduate because, because I thought, oh, <laughs> they're short. they will be easy. <laughs> and so I graduated from Berkeley. I, 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 I became a professor in 97. And the summer before I started being a professor, I thought, okay, I'm going to get serious about writing short stories. I'm going to write a short story collection. I wrote an entire short story collection in three months. And then it would take 17 years to revise that short story collection and almost none of it was fun. 99% it basically sucked. Okay, I mean it was just like the only pleasure I ever got was like when one of these stories would be accepted for publication. That was about it. But everything was drudgery and agony and misery and despair. I'm not even exaggerating. It was really 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 hard. Like the the, the black eyed woman story that the one that I read 50 drafts over 17 years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And this is not unusual for writers. I mean, yeah. this happens to many of us, yeah. right? And so, so that was... That, but that was, I was a good Catholic. I thought, you know, Jesus Christ died on the cross. I can write this for 17 years. It's like... It's, that's, that's, what, that's what good Catholics say to themselves to justify whatever it is that they're going through, right? <laughs> and, uh... And, uh... But the reward came, which is then my my agent found got the collection and said, "Hey, I love the collection, but you got to write a novel, because short story collections don't sell no, don't. in New York City." I said, like, "Fine, I'll write a novel," and it was fun to write. It was really, really Good. fun to write. Two years, and mostly it was it was a lot of pleasure. Even writing the torture scenes was mm-hmm. fun. I had some I had some sleepless nights imagining what was going on. But I have to say, as a technical challenge, how do I do this? It was fun. And I enjoyed it.
2: Oh, i got to tell you about your torture scenes. Um, <laughs> okay, so I wrote a blurb for your book and gave you praise. And, uh, and I never confessed to anybody. I, I mean, I just gave the impression that I had read the whole book. <laughs>
1: The torture scenes. I know. Uh, How do you know? You said it in an interview. Oh, oh,
2: I did. I did. (laughs) I did. I did. I I confessed. No, you did. I confessed to the New York Times. I think so. I I told them. I didn't read the torture scenes.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So now we're even. Yeah.
2: Okay. Okay. We're even. (laughs) Okay. So so I I, I am like you. I don't have fun either. Mm -hmm. And... uh, um, but I, I'm having fun right now.
1: Good. I'm glad. You've <laughs> come full circle. Well, are you? I am. It's fantastic. Okay. Yeah. okay. <laughs> Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you, too. You've been
0: listening to a Lannan Podcast. You can subscribe to our podcasts at podcast.lannan.org. In addition, the Lannan Audio Archives present similar programs by national and international writers, poets, and social activists at www.lannan.org. Listen to hundreds of hours of recorded programs from the likes of Seamus Haney, Joy Harjo, Eduardo Galeano, Arundhati Roy, Jim Harrison, Edwidge Danticat, and Noam Chomsky. New programs are added every month to both the podcasts and the audio archives.